This is going to be quite the episode today. We have Dr. Ethan Becker. He's the president and second generation senior coach and trainer for the Speech Improvement Company. It's the oldest communication coaching and training firm in America. But for today, more importantly, I think he's created what I would consider a tool case, a set of tools for mastering communication at work. And that's the name of his book with the co-author John Wortman. It's How to Lead, Manage, and Influence. It's the second edition. He was kind enough to provide me a copy, which I promptly read. And it resides on my desk as a go-to resource and how-to in the speech side of the house. So, Dr. Becker, thank you so much for taking the time. So, if you would, you know, I, I think maybe starting out with a story about your company and your mom and how this all came to pass. Sure, sure. It's, uh, it's good to be here, actually. And when we, I get asked that question about the company because we've been, we, we were founded in 1964. Uh, my mom and my dad, they were both at Emerson College, which for a very long time is really where you would go for communication. She was studying speech pathology and he was studying, get this, rhetoric and public address. Like that was the vocation, right? And they met and they dated and they got together. And they had this idea that if you, if you could coach an executive, a business person, the same way an athlete was coached, you could really help that person. So, and their specialty was in communication. So they did that through the lens of communication and the company name, they started right away and they said, well, let's just name it what we do, the speech improvement company. And between the two of them, the company, they they found something that could focus on, in some cases, mechanics of speaking, and in other cases, psychology, persuasion, rhetoric. And of course, naturally that grew into the business world. And that's how it originally, it started a long, long time ago. So was there, was there a recognition or a pushback when they started the company going, oh, you know, good speakers are born, not made. (laughs) Yeah. You get some of that stuff. And they also had other challenges. Just they were (laughs) out of the norm. So my mother, uh, a blind Jewish woman who married a Catholic boy in the 1960s, that didn't go over so well. <laughs> at the time, you know, your dad must have needed a lot of work for her to marry him and to try to improve him. Irish Catholic boy from Pennsylvania hitchhiked his way up to Boston and, uh, you know, did what he what he could in, to get through school. And then she came from a, a long line. Uh, her grandfather was one of the founding members of Brandeis University. So she came wow. from a different place. These two were really not from the same background but they found love and they found commonality and they started this business. And then it quickly grew. They never wanted to grow large, the the company. So there was always about 10 or 11 on the team. And now we're about 20 right now, but they never really wanted to be like a Dale Carnegie or a McKinsey or some watered down sort of one size fits all for everybody type of thing. So they always wanted it to be small and they they had a real focus on the academics of communication. So even now, like there's no, there's really nobody on the team who might've had a a theater background or was, and you know, that wasn't really going in in their career. So they're doing this myself, all of us on the team, we've all studied speech communication at the graduate level or beyond. So that way we can go a little deeper with our clients than your typical executive coach. 
It's worked out well for us. It's made for a really interesting collection of people. You know, I, I think about you as a kid in, and we talked a little bit before the show, you know, and, and here you are, you're just a kid and you go, my mom, we, somewhere in the book, you talk about plosives and we probably should talk about those. So your mom doesn't come back and get us both, you know, and, and then how was that growing up in a family where they were building a business and, you know, in communications? Yeah, it's interesting. Let me, maybe uh, for your listeners, let me just share what that word is. It's a technical word in speech communication, plosives. So when we, there's one part of our business that specializes in accent. I don't do a lot of accent. I do, my mom, before she passed away, she certified me in accent work, but it's not my favorite thing. I do more leadership communication, but the accent work in our business, folks who have English as a second language, uh, they often come to us because they have a difficult time producing sounds. So they study what is known as the International Phonetic Alphabet, which has hundreds of symbols, and the symbols represent sounds. In general American English, which is what we speak in the United States, there's only about anywhere between 40 to 60 sounds, depending on which speech coach you talk to, but about that, that make up the entire language. Out of that group, there is one group called plosives, and it has eight sounds in them, b as in boy, d as in dog, g as in girl, j as in jump, p as in put, t as in toy, k as in kite, and ch as in child or chocolate. We got to learn them that fast. Okay. Okay. That's just what these things are. They're called plosives because they're exploded when they're made. And why do we care about these? Well, you know, we care about plosives because when we are talking with people who we know very well, meaning they know our speech pattern well, we don't probably really actually don't care <laughs> about plosives, but we do something in human language, all languages called assimilation. We combine sounds. We say, gimme instead of give me, wanna instead of want to. And you know, if I say, gimme, give me the cup of water and you give me a cup of water and well, who cares? Right. Until now I'm speaking with somebody from a different department at the company, from not maybe not even in the company. And it's not that they don't know my language, but they don't know my speech pattern. And if I assimilate like that, I make it more work for the other person. This is what this is all about. This is why we get nerdy about these technical things. We talk at approximately 183 words per minute, average rate of speech. We can think at like 600 words per minute. So when I talk to you, you can hear me, but there's this extra 400 words a minute trying to process and decipher and hear it. So if I assimilate and I say, tomorrow we can get up at eight and go, what? <laughs> Your brain can figure out tomorrow we're going to get up at eight and go, okay, fine, fine, until I do it again and again. And after a few minutes of this, listeners begin to zone out. So we, we look at plosives as a way to strengthen the quality of words. You don't, and, and we chose them because one, they're impactful, two, they're easy. So that's kind of the what. <laughs> to answer your question about my house growing up, we had sayings at the dinner table like, plosives are neat, but hard to repeat. <laughs> like, that's how I got Hard for life. Yep. Yep. <laughs> 
So any, anyway, I, I, there's probably more of an answer than you're looking for, but there's some technical stuff. And that's why we put it in the book. I mean, this stuff matters. It really does. Well, I, I grew up in the deep South, been out West for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in the deep South, I'll go back periodically and there's people from down the holler for lack of a better word. And, you know, the words are cut off and some, it, it's really interesting trying to communicate when you're not from there. And yeah. so, you know, I can see where it's a barrier. It doesn't mean they're not smart people. It just means that's how they communicate. You know, for you, you know, you've been doing this seems like since you were this tall, right? One way or another. Yeah. And there's a transformation. I think if you become a good speaker, you know, is there a story that you could relate where somebody went through either the book or coaching with you guys and then the outcome on the other side that changed their life? You got a story like that? We sort of do every day. Uh, in a way, I mean, this pretty much kind of because it's, it's the the heart of what we do in coaching. A lot of it is in presentation skills. So folks will come to us and they may feel very nervous. A manager may come to us and say, yes, I have uh, not only am I nervous, I may just I've been told I'm boring, things like that. Now we hear that. But as a coach, we have to profile and understand that because one person saying I'm boring may not have the same meaning as a different person saying I'm boring. So we look at them and assess them and right. Usually we can profile pretty quickly, even just in their speech pattern and within seconds, we can understand a whole lot about them. But then when we see like their formal presentation, okay, we start looking at what they need to work on. And we've seen folks go from feeling really, really terrified like call in sick to work so I don't have to speak scared to raising their hand saying, can I do another one? I mean, you can absolutely change that. I mean, speech is a behavior just like every other behavior. So we can learn how to be very, very effective. You know, I I think about the esteem that we hold recognized folks that can communicate, you know, Winston Churchill and others, and you look at them and, you know, they weren't born that way. I don't think. You know, I spent a lot of time. Was it the King's speech? There was a really good thing on him, you know, but that had, you know, some more issues other than just speaking, mm-hmm. you know, but I think that's become of interest. You know, as an example, let's say that I'm, I'm a business owner and I just bought a new company and I've got to go in and, you know, behave like private equity. I have a certain target I need to achieve. I need a certain return on investment and I'm trying to inventory what I'm dealing with and I need to communicate how would you tell that person to approach or how would you use your book to help them approach that challenge? Yeah, I, there are actually some, that particular situation, there are some examples in the book. Mark Russell, we talk about in the book, he was brought in as a turnaround guy, an ad agency, WPP Wonderman. And he was, let's see, I think he was like the fifth CEO in like six years or something like that. So there was a lot of turnaround. So you had a real challenge. You had to come in and communicate and get people excited and moving in a direction. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy thing. And I think in every situation, it's a little bit unique. In his case, what we, we wanted them to do was to take the first six months and go and go on tour and get to know the different groups and learn a little bit about what was going on before having a first town hall meeting. And then at the town hall, he uh, starts out the presentation and there was something, uh, something like... Um, it was a very honest approach at the time. And it was something along the terms of uh, puts a slide up and everybody's expecting sort of another generic speech. And he's like, 
Well, I had a, you know, get a great chance to talk to everybody and get some ideas. And so let's me share some of the comments that I heard that we got. And he puts up the first comment. And it was something along the terms of management just doesn't seem to have a clue what they're doing. <laughs> he turns around and he looks back at everybody and he says, well, that's not good. <laughs> and it was, a, it was an honesty. It was a humor. And it would help to establish what Aristotle would call ethos or credibility in the eyes of these people who have now seen many different leaders turning around. And he had to do more than just one speech and he had to go and follow up with that. But it's a good story about that. But in more specifically, like how can somebody use a book like Mastering Communication at Work? We wrote this as a, I liked it as a tool box, really. You flip to the area. Are you dealing with someone who's defensive? There's a chapter on that. Are you putting a presentation together? It's more than just, here's how you put a presentation together. But we put in comments about how your presentation should change based on different situations. It is not the same. This is why when we hear people say like, hey, you can do a TED talk, like talk like TED. It's like, you better not in some cases, right? If you're presenting to investors and you're asking for funding and you go in and you take a conference style, which TED speeches are conference style to an investor meeting, yeah, it's not going to go so well. <laughs> they want to know what do you want, how much, who's that? Like it's like, and we talked about inductive deductive right in the beginning. What do you want? They don't want some beautiful story, <laughs> you know. So, but in other environments, you might take that approach. So the book is really set up to be a tool for folks, and that's where a lot of our clients they just keep it on their shelves, pull it off when they need it, giving feedback, get a feedback to people. Well, okay, here's a specific way to organize the conversation. Not just here's what you should do, but here's how to do it. Now, there was a part in there where they, you had to do, go present to the board. And I thought, you know, I think for the first time you've ever done it, and you go like, I need help. You know, and speaking of which, so, you know, let's say that I'm, I'm the book consumer. I've gone through your book. I've underlined what I needed to. And I go, you know what? I'm just not getting there. What's the next step past the book to try to take and master uh, the concepts that you're talking about? Well, short of calling a coach and working with a coach, let's say, I mean, that, that's what a lot of folks do, but let's just say that's not an option for you. Can't do that. If you can, that's great because a coach will walk you through it. But if you can't, the next best thing is you got to start practicing it out loud. As my sister, who's also in the family business, she's been in longer than me too. Uh, she always likes to say, when we practice in our mind, we're perfect every time. So you got to practice out loud and you want to record yourself. There's high value in that. And that, that may not be new to people. Like we've been hearing for ever since video that, oh, record yourself. But here's why. Because when you watch back a recording of yourself, there's a calibration happening in the mind. Oh, that's what I sound like. That's what I look like. And then once you do it once and get a kind of a feeling for the content, do it again. But this time, intentionally try things maybe out of your comfort zone with the delivery. Maybe you need more emotion, ethos, right? Maybe you need less emotion. Try that out and watch it back. And, and very quickly, you'll get a good solid sense of how you're coming across. Well, you were talking in the book about pacing. I think it's pacing, but you know, you take and go, okay, I'm going to raise my voice. I'm going to lower my voice. I'm going to increase the speed of delivery. I'm going to pause in what seems like an uncomfortable vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with a special uh, thank you to the television industry, silence is very awkward. <laughs> I say that because in television, there's no silence. I mean, in general, like you watch any TV show, when two people are not talking, you hear sound effects, music, something. 
Well, this is one of the, when we've put a lot of research into the fear of public speaking, the things that makes us, make us anxious, television is one of four that contribute to it. And why? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is the silence. Some people are comfortable with it. Anybody can become comfortable with it, but it takes a little bit of practice. Why have silence? I mean, what, what you're talking about here with the, you see throughout the word pacing, when we talk about speed, we break it into two parts. We have rate of speech and pace of speech. The rate is the speed at which we put words together. If I have good articulation, I can talk at a faster rate and people can understand me. Right now, I'm probably talking at about 193 words per minute, if I had to guess. On average, it's 183. If I start talking at a faster rate like this, I'm probably up around 218 words per minute. This is much faster. That's an easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, if you pause every so often, you can actually talk at a fast rate Mm -hmm. and people will understand you. But if you talk at a fast rate like this and you don't pause for pacing and things like that, and you start talking about technical things and you're expecting people to follow and understand what you're talking about, you're going to, they're just going to be begging for you to just take a breath. (laughs) It's like, it's exhausting. You're going to die. Yes. So that's just what it is, right? So what you can play with in your practicing is where and when should you pause? Now, coaches, speech coaches, specifically speech coaches, at least on our team, I mean, at Speech Improvement Company, we do this all the time. We practice it. We train for it. We are really well trained to look at, well, if I'm going to help you with pacing, I need to understand who your listeners are, what the content is, and what you're trying to communicate. And from there, we will give coaching and advice because not all tips that you find on the internet are going to be good for you. Like you know, the, the classic, put your hand in your pocket, right? Well, some people just can put their hand in their pocket. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Other people can't. Yeah. If you have change in there, you're going to go, don't play, you know, yeah. but yeah. you know, the thing that struck me about part of it is understanding your target audience really well. You know, I think like I came from the Intel world back in the military way back when, so you kind of got to understand the other side, you know, and if you do, you approach a certain way. And I thought, you know, it was really useful. One of the things that we touched on, maybe we'll do a little marriage counseling work here, uh, yeah. inductive versus deductive. What time is it? You don't understand this morning when I was coming home from, you know, and you get this dialogue, the deductive person versus the inductive person doesn't mean one's right or wrong, but they communicate way differently. Yeah. Th- this is a great, this is Aristotle, right? Aristotle. And the terms have been used, I've heard them in different ways over the years. I, sometimes I think they're a little bit confusing to folks, but they don't have to be. It's really very, very simple. The inductive thinker, this is what Aristotle was trying to say, right? What he was trying to figure out was how do we think and reason? When you talk to me, how do I reason and make sense out of what I'm hearing? When I talk to you, how do you reason and make sense? So he figured these two words, inductive, deductive. If, here's what it means. If I'm an inductive thinker, that's it. This is who I am. That means that you got to give me the background information first, all the specific little details that lead me up to your general conclusion, your main point. It's called going from the specific to the general. That's what it's called. And deductive is the opposite of that. You start with the general conclusion, and then you give all your specific little details. And it matters because when these two people meet each other, look out. There's a level of frustration yes. that can tear the communication apart. Yeah, it's you know it's one of those things. Bottom line, it for me, right? Yeah. And I, so right. I know what kind of person I am, you know, and pretty straightforward there. You know, and, and I think about communicating complex topics. It's easy to make a complex topic complex. Yeah. 
you know, and I think about for much of what goes on today, you know, and I'm in the investment world trying to take a complex concept and drive it down to simplistic, understandable points. You know, for you guys, do you get involved in that a lot? Oh yeah. Often. We often do on on a regular basis. Uh, We might, for instance, take the industry of life sciences, right? So we may have a company that has their first $50 million and now they're looking to go out and get the next 200 million. And their management leadership team are scientists, academics, and they come from a world that has been trained intentionally with a more inductive style as the comfort in a way that people like. But now they're in a deductive environment and it may be easy to understand. This goes to that whole concept of telling you what to do versus how to do it. Mm -hmm. Anyone can understand what to do, but then when it's time to do it, it just feels so awkward, awkward and awful and odd and there's, a, there's some practicing and some skill in learning how do I present in a deductive way. And so we do work with that. We call it hybrid speech writing, where we will work with clients together because they're the expert in the content, but we'll work with them on framing it, practicing it. And there's a lot of this going on. Okay, try it. No, that's not it. Try it again. <laughs> you know, and we're not being mean. We're not trying to be mean, but it's like, you got to know if it's not working. And then when you get it, you get it. And you know, I think a lot of confidence, the, the VC world, right? And oh, so you yeah. look at those folks, <laughs> they're going to go out and they're wanting to get funding and they spend no, well, I don't know, no, but they don't spend a sufficient amount of time to match their pitch to the audience. Yep. And, you know, and I think that's a small investment. That's right. In my mind. We see our architects, uh, design professionals, that industry builders, where their livelihood is on whether or not they win the job at an interview, yet they don't do the practicing you know, or they, what, what a lot of teams will do is they'll talk about it. Well, you cover this. Yeah. Uh, Tom, you cover that stuff. So, okay. Well, that's not that helpful. Right. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but not nearly as effective as if that team were to actually present, maybe even record themselves. Ideally they'd have a coach or somebody in there too, but even just on their own, it's a night and day difference between going to, and then, and it's not, you don't have to memorize this mm-hmm. isn't about, but we're not actors. We're not professional actors, right? This is about familiarize, familiarize yourself with not just what you're going to say, but how you're going to say it. And then, wow, wow. I mean, the quality of the messaging, really high. What strikes me as I was thinking here, you know, you've got the, the verbal approach to presentation and communication, and then there's the visual side too. You know, in the day it was, you know, geez, that was a pretty PowerPoint. You know, nowadays it's kind of like, uh, no. Less is better. Yeah. For you, when you think about working with some of the folks you do, typical advice, if there's such a thing, on the visual representation of what you're trying to communicate. Yeah. And it's probably not a necessarily new topic. Many, many senior leaders have heard, keep the slides simple. But the reason is it helps to understand why, what's going on with this. I'm not a big fan of, there are some teams that say no PowerPoint at all, period. I get that. I get the frustration. I I just think it's a little bit of a (laughs) cop-out because the visuals can be very helpful, can be very helpful. They can also be very harmful in the, the ability to communicate messages because we write it all out on the slide and then project the slide 10 feet high, or nowadays it takes over the entire screen or most of the screen. So there's a problem with that because people can't, in general, people can have a very difficult time reading and listening at the exact same time. It's very hard to do. It's kind of like if you were to watch a movie 
and the video and audio are not synchronized, you can still watch that movie, but it's a lot of effort. That 400 words a minute in the back of your mind is overtime, working overtime to connect what it sees and hears. So imagine if that movie and halfway through it clicks into perfect sync. <sighs> now that's what's happening in a business presentation when the visuals have too much information on them. Now, sometimes it's a, so you, the technique is to try to synchronize as best you can. But sometimes you can't. You're projecting a spreadsheet. And I get that. I respect that. I understand that. Uh, so there are techniques that people can learn to do to maximize the synchronization, maximize the impact, and, it, and now it's helping you. But in most cases, we don't do that. It's just very mean to the listeners because <laughs> it's like a deck of reading. I, was, I wanted to ask kind of one more question down this thread. So I'm uh, task with going out and selling a particular thing, item or whatever to a particularly large opportunity. I don't know if this person is deductive or inductive. I don't, you know, there's a lot of things I don't know, but I really want to make sure that, you know, I have my presentation tailored to the behavior of the potential decision maker. Mm -hmm. What type of things can you do to try to figure out what are you dealing with? Yeah, that, this is a very common, whether it's in a selling situation like you're describing, or if it's an internal meeting at a business, you can take a, take a page out of sales, right? So we work with a lot of sales teams, a lot of sales teams around the world. And we study a lot of the different sales methodologies. And they're, for the most part, they're kind of all the same. Sandler, Spin, Challenger, they pretty much are all, they go kind of back to the 1950s where consultative selling started mm -hmm. to evolve at least in a way that was written about, at least in a way that was documented. I'm sure it goes way back further than that. But yeah. if you want to learn about it, I guess one that I think is easy to pick up, it's known as spin. Now, this one was first in the 1970s, I think. Neil Rackman wrote about this. And all of these guys, really what they do is they look at great salesmen and they sit down and write, what did they do? Ooh, what did they do? And they try to document. So as speech coaches, we look at this so that we can then help people do it well. But here's what, what works well. If you understand the general concepts, you've got to ask questions to understand where your customer is coming from. Now, that's not necessarily new, but see, most people are only asking questions like, what's your budget, how many people, or things related to the project or the product. What you should be writing down is how did they answer the question? Did they answer it in an inductive or a deductive way? Do they have a lot of emotion when they talk? Are they name dropping and they're really big on credibility? Are they very logos logic based, right? These, this information is like gold. Yes, you need to know the scope and the size and all of those things. But the most seasoned sales professionals will definitely take a look at inductive, deductive and credibility, emotion and logic. And then when you're putting together a slide presentation, uh, not only do you figure out because you've learned about the scope of the project, what do they actually need, but now you can present it in a way that connects, that mm -hmm. feels right to them, that feels like you get them. And it doesn't feel like you just took yesterday's deck and are forcing it down their throat. And it's just boring. I mean, if your service is so good, if you're selling an iPhone back the year, the year it came out, well, you don't have to do much selling. <laughs> You know, if your service is really, really good, then well, that, that's not the problem there. But if you have a lot of competition and so forth, this will push you over the top because you'll make that connection. You'll make that connection. And un unlike, uh, I think one of the, I think it's Challenger that's saying that sort of the world of the relationship is no longer important. I don't agree with that at all. I, I think the relationships are very important and this, it, this can help you to connect. My sense is more because people are looking for connection. They really are. Oh, they you know, are. 
It's a trust thing. Do yes. I trust you? Right? Do I think you can do what I need? If I go to my boss and put my neck on the line, or if I put the dollar amount down here, it's a feeling. Does it feel like we're going to make a connection? Shifting gears a little bit. You're the president of the company. You are second generation president of the company. You know, in the business transition exit planning space, that can be a bit of a challenge periodically going second generation. At what point in time or what event precipitated you becoming president of the company? Well, I didn't plan on coming into the family business. Uh, I actually, I studied television and film production in my undergraduate degree and then went in and worked in high tech for a while and moved up the up the ranks in this digital video high-tech world in the 90s. We actually created this incredible website called iconstream.tv. Now it's not a long, don't, don't bother looking it up, it's gone. But it was basically YouTube mm-hmm. before YouTube. It was amazing. I mean, we built this thing. I had a team I, and we had, I don't know, close to 300,000 unique visitors, people uploading their videos and sharing them is all part of the digital video space mm-hmm. as that revolution was changing. And then that whole project got sold as part of a $16 million sale to Autodesk. Mm-hmm. And my division that I was running, we got sold in it. And Autodesk, in their infinite wisdom, shut it down. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> they were like, oh, nobody really cares about video on the internet. And we're like, what? And they a big part of the deal, they wanted, it turns out they wanted some pieces of software code in one of the parts of the deal. And it was just like, so when that all happened, I, I got really turned off to the corporate world in that way. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I, was, I had to let go of my team. I was let go when the division got closed. And then, so my wife and I, at the time, she was pregnant with twins. She had given up her teaching job and we went from two incomes with no kids to no income and twins. <laughs> And so mom and dad said, why don't you come work with us? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> life raft, life raft, yes. Yeah. They set me up in the basement in literal because they owned this four-story brownstone building on Beacon Street in Boston, just out of in Brookline, Massachusetts, just out of Boston. And it was a beautiful four-story brownstone for the building. My office was in the boiler room <laughs> in the basement. A little desk they set up. And I'm like, I went from this like high flying, high tech, digital dot com, lots of revenue happening. And I say to my mom, I said, so mom, what's the, uh, what's the marketing budget here? You know, I'm like, I've been working there for like two weeks. And she's like, what's the marketing budget? Do you want me to make you a sandwich? I've got peanut butter. I'm like, oh, <laughs> my life's over. I could not have been more wrong. I mean, yes, I was poor me for a little bit. But then when I started doing formal coach training, because yeah. I grew up around it. I just thought everybody knew about Aristotle's persuasion and I did explosives, but I did have to go through formal training. And I was at Harvard University. Uh, I was watching my dad. He was there and all of these CEOs were brought in to watch my father speak and to learn from him. And he's doing stuff that I've been hearing my whole life as a kid, right? And I'm like, but they are loving it. And it was really amazing to see your dad. And because normally I'm like off in Vegas and doing all of these things and I was just an amazing moment. And I knew I wanted in. I'm like, this is pretty. I'm like, you get paid 
to do this. Like, this is like what we grew up with. Right. I wanted in and I started at the very bottom, just like every new coach that does. I had no clients yet and I worked to develop it and try to strengthen my skill. I redirected my MBA, redirected my PhD. Everything was not in the original plan, <laughs> came into it. And my parents would not stop. <laughs> so they wouldn't turn the business over. And what happened was uh, cancer. So I moved to Malaysia. One of my clients asked mm -hmm. my family if we wanted to be based out of Malaysia. They wanted me on loan for a little while. So I did work all throughout Southeast Asia. And we were living there. And then cancer came. And with my mom, she was a breast cancer survivor. So we didn't think much of it. We're like, cancer, yeah, who cares? You know, she's got this. Yes. And six months in, we, this was pancreatic cancer. And we knew it wasn't going to go the way we wanted. And it, things got real serious real fast. I canceled the contract with the, the team I had over in Malaysia and came home. Very quickly, she was no longer able to sort of run things in the business. And my dad kind of either, really, because he was with her by yeah. her side. They were married 50, over 50 years and ran this company together. Family of six, you know, it's an amazing story. And it was very, very difficult. So I started stepping up at that point. I have an older sister. She had no interest in being management. But for those out there listening who are in family businesses, my sister and I had some very honest heart-to-heart -heart talks before things got serious about me taking charge because we didn't want to be in a situation where it was going to be sibling rivalry. We have a great, great relationship. And she was incredibly supportive. She said, I don't want to be a manager. I want to just keep coaching. And, and I'm sitting here like I did my MBA and I'm like, I'll do it. And we sort of went from there. So when my mom died, my wife and I took ownership of the firm from my dad. And uh, now he works when he feels like it. He's still very active. The guy's incredible. He's got an, a huge client base, but just kind of works when he wants and great, great setup. He built something amazing with my mom. And uh, my hope is to carry it for another generation and uh, carry the torch just a little bit, maybe grow it just a little bit, inch it further. And uh, that's, that's what we're doing. So it's a great story. You know, I, I think about so many different stories, you know, I, I can see the emotion in your face as you talk about your mom, you know, and, and I think about the business owners that are, you know, their, their wish, I think in many cases to pass the family business to the children. And the reality is not very many of them are done successfully. You know, if you were to look back over your academic efforts, knowing what you know now, what did you not take in school that you should have taken? You know, I, I don't know because I never planned to go back to grad school. I hated school. I was not a math guy. I did communication because math was not my thing, ADHD guy. But back in those days, they didn't diagnose that stuff, right? You yeah. just sort of yeah. fucked it up. So it was, a, I think it was like six or seven years between my undergrad and my MBA, and then another six years before that and the PhD. Yeah. And it was halfway through the PhD that I got the honorary doctorate. And I asked my mom, this was right about when the cancer was, was happening. And I asked my mom, does this mean I can quit the PhD? Cause I get the doctor title now. And she's like, no. Solid, nope. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, um, you know, so I stuck with it, but I don't know that I would have, if somebody was interested in getting into this space, I would say anything related to communication or psychology or business. Those are all good foundational tools for a speech coach. Yes, we work with politicians, celebrities and stuff, but I'd say the majority of our work is in the business environment. So background in psychology. So my PhD is, a, is in psychology with a focus on industry organizational psychology. Mm. I only chose that because I had been coaching for a long time now. 
And I could see, I want, I didn't want the title. I wanted more knowledge. I wanted to better understand what I was seeing inside of all of these different companies and why I would be in Massachusetts and hear the same thing in Malaysia or Indonesia when mostly television and internet talks about how different we all are in different cultures, I'd be hearing almost identical human concerns. My manager doesn't understand me. I get nervous when I have to speak and the boss is in the room. Uh, There's too much on my plate. I have to give feedback and the person gets defensive. Like I'm hearing this in Germany. I'm hearing it in Ireland and Indonesia, Korea, (laughs) everywhere. I wanted to understand Constructive criticism, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, who takes what was criticism constructively? Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, what's interesting is there are it's it, words shape perception. Hmm. So there are ways to communicate ideas that might be perceived as negative, and people walk away and they still feel good about themselves. And that's in the book. That was yes. really interesting for me. You know, because I, you know, I I've got kids to coach. My kids in their thirties. You know, and and I think about. All of the things, you know, and speaking of that, you know, so you're at whatever your age are currently. So if you had to roll the clock backwards, right, and offer advice to you, the brand new guy taking and running the company, what advice would you offer to the younger you way back then? This may not sound shocking to people, but I would say, just be patient. It'll come. (laughs) But I mean it because back then I was so hungry. I mean, I, look, I had just come from a position in the high tech space where money really wasn't an object. In the 90s, high tech, those companies, they were making a lot of revenue. So managing you know, big events and activities, we had funding to do stuff. And I go into a small little family business with nothing. Right? I was eager and excited. And I would say, just be patient. Good advice. So for Head you- down, Keep working and you'll get there. <laughs> You know, in the business, you know, there's, I guess, was it PC, uh, pre-COVID, during COVID, and now (laughs) I'm hoping we're post-COVID. How did you see your business change or adjust to that event? I'm proud of the team. I really am. It's not easy. We got, it was like a switch within the course of three days, coaches were calling me, some of them in tears as they would watch their revenue, their work for the next two to three months that was already scheduled. We often schedule about six months out. We're busy all the time. We're pretty much always booked with coaching an individual or a group, right? And within three days, coach by coach, cancellation after cancellation after cancellation. And for some of the coaches, I mean, this is for for all all of us, it's our livelihood. This is how we make our living. It was very unsettling, scary. So we, we got together and we sort of tightened the belts and said, what are we going to do? Fortunately, we are in the type of vocation where remote work can be useful. But at first, it was nothing. Most of our clients, if not all, cut off budgets and things were just turned off. And we really were pretty like, okay, hang on, everybody. <laughs> you know, we got each other. We're going to do fine. And there was a lot of creativity. There was a lot of discussion and learning and studying. We had been doing remote stuff anyway, because we have clients in Japan and Malaysia and overseas. So that's not new for us, but we realized we needed to convert what once was an, a two-day offsite presentation or leadership skills program that bonds, people love it, it's great, to a Zoom experience and there, or teams or go-to meeting. And so we, we learned a lot. Some of them were tough lessons. We didn't realize till we were in the group. But we did learn things like group size is significant. 
these days we will say if it's virtual, we got to keep the groups to 12 or less. Mm-hmm. And, and the, going to 13, 14, it's like that curve you see with technology where you know, in the newer years, the curve goes almost straight up the, how fast technology is adopted. It's like that for attention span. Yeah. In a group of 12 or smaller, attention span can be retained and the quality of training, development, coaching that happens in the is high. More people, it starts to drop and it was tough. But we learned things like that. And slowly our clients started opening up their budgets in different ways. And we were able to be of service to them and watch for our own team that was also dealing with just the emotion of what they see on television and news. So as a leader, it was just trying to keep everybody calm and it's all right. You know, we'll be here. We'll be here. And we have been, and we made it. We made it, you know, a year later now, we're really ramping up again. It's been fantastic. Well, you talk in the book about framing, you know, and, and I think about first, you have the shock of the event and then you go, okay, I understand the problem. Where's the opportunity? You know, and I think about the level of communication that has to happen from your clients to their clients. And so you guys are leading the charge on how to frame properly, how to communicate properly, you know, and tonality and all of that stuff. I would think that at some juncture, people said, we can't do without you. Oh, there, we have a lot of clients that are like that. There are many of our clients who've been working with them for decades. I think the oldest I saw, it was probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And as a woman came up to me after a, after a group, she was an old lady and she came up to me and she said, I thought you were going to be your father. And I'm like, oh, she's like, I took his class in 1963. We started in 1964. So this is when he and my mom were just kind of getting going. <laughs> she still remembered what she learned. And she said she then she later wrote us a really nice letter. But that's not uncommon. Uh, many of our clients have been working with us a long time. A client of mine, John Platt. He is the CEO and chairman of Sony Music. Uh, He's been working with us. He started when he was an executive vice president with us. Mm -hmm. And he said, I would love to move up in my career. And he needed to learn some language. He knew the language of his craft and music. This is the guy who produced and found Beyonce and Jay-Z and some really big name. And he was excellent at it. And now he needed to learn some new language for the executive C-suite. And he did. He did. And he's moved up along the way throughout his career, still calls us today. So it's not like I took the class and I'm done. Still calls us today because each presentation or environment might be a something new. So we'll use this as a resource. And that's kind of how we work with folks. You know, it's, you know, it's like a little knowledge start, starts to open up your perspective on the importance, you know, and, and, you know, and I've been married 30 plus years. And you think about the opportunities to not communicate well are regular and rampant, you know, and can be. And thank God you have you know, a spouse that has a sense of humor, you know, that puts up with you, which puts up with me anyways. You know, do you think there's an overarching misconception about what you do? Probably. We often get, I think the most common misconception we get when we say, yes, uh, the speech improvement company. Oh, you work with children? <laughs> get that all the time. Because speech therapy, speech pathologist. We thought of changing the company name and speech coach. We've thought about it and I get it. I get it. But it's very technically correct. It is exactly what we do. Speech communication is the way we think, the way we talk. And in fact, when we are doing uh, leadership communication training, a lot of schools out there, whether it's Harvard or MIT or programs that are out there, people looking at leadership programs, I don't know that they get it right. They will put leadership at the top of the pyramid. 
And oh yeah, by the way, here's a little thing on communication skills. Mm-hmm. No way. If you talk to, if you go to the, the NCA, the National Communication Association, thousands and thousands of professionals in communication go to this every year, right? They're all academics. And they'll, they laugh at that because the general thinking is that the entire leadership industry has plagiarized <laughs> the communication industry. And I know that's a strong word, right? In academics. But the whole point is that in communication, this is where the psychology is studied for communication. So this stuff, we would turn that pyramid on the side and say, look, if you learn and master your communication, you end up with very strong leaders. But topics like how to give feedback, how to motivate, how to inspire, how to present, how to give feedback, right? These are all communication competencies that sometimes are sometimes are often wrapped in a leadership program. And the reason we I talk about it that way is because I think it's not the way to go about building skill. You know, if you learn it in its core, if you strengthen real skill, fundamental tools in the way you think, in the mm-hmm. way you produce sound, you'll be excellent at communicate. Perfect? No. I mess up all the time. I am not perfect. And I was raised by two PhD speech coaches. I'm not perfect. I mess up. But the quality, the effect. I need to talk to your dad. I need to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, listen. Here? Pull him on the show and uh, he'll, be, he'll be talking about me. He'll be like, when Ethan came here, <laughs> he still talks about me like I'm six. <laughs> you know, I, I, it, I really didn't know what to expect out of today's episode. You know, I read the book and just went like, how did I not know? You know, for, you know, I've got the leadership training from the military. That's pretty straightforward stuff. Lead from the front, you know, take care of the troops, do what you say, you know, straightforward things, you know, and then recently have been really starting to become enamored with story, do a fair amount with the Stoics, you know, and, and looking at that side of the house and in, in the industry that I'm in, uh, you know, communication of an intangible you know, effort is really critical and poorly received, understood, you know, by many. And so, you know, looking at your contribution and your family's contribution to the space of understanding, I think, and, you know, for the folks out there going like, you know, I really want to get better at this. How do people find you and your company? Sure. Thank you for that recognition. I, I do appreciate it. We, the reality is we are a small firm and we by design try and stay humble. When I hire, I get about one or 200 resumes a year from folks who want to join us. And one of the things I'll say to anybody I interview is, you know, sure, we want to make money, but that has to come secondary to helping people. My mom and dad had this vision that you can, if you, you can heal the world, if you help people learn how to talk more effectively with each other, they stop hitting each other. And that might start in the business world and then go into other places, but you really have to have a desire to help. So as a result, we do stay somewhat humble as a brand. And even when folks come in here, when we'll have celebrities come into our office, they love, it's very homey. It's very down to earth, very calm on purpose. And we do have about 2000 books here physically here in our library in the next room over, all on communication that go back as far as Aristotle and as new as present day so that we can stay fresh with this. So folks can find us. If you ever come to Massachusetts, you can come into the office and we're here. And you can find us on the website, of course, speechimprovement.com. There's also, if you're interested in this kind of a thing, there is an app that we put out called Speech Companion. This is a free app. 
Speech Companion. It only works on iPhone right now because that's kind of all we've been able to figure out how to do. But it's a really good app. And it's actually a night. We didn't intend it to be a companion to the book, but it happens to coincide. It's a companion to a lot of the work we do with our clients. But there's, there's an excellent review right on the app of some of the tools that are taught in the book. And in some cases with the plosive sounds, we actually built in this thing called the Plosives Practice Lab. It's really cool. They used my voice in the app. So you can tap and hear me demonstrate the correct way to practice the sentence. And then you can record yourself right in. The, it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. It's just a free, we're not, we're not making a buck off the app. It's just- What you're telling me is your children all have your app on the phone, right? Yeah, <laughs> they, they were beta testers. <laughs> you know, I, I think about, you know, going full circle back. So your children now are in a home much like you were. Because your, your wife is also highly educated, I think, if I read correctly. She is. She's master's. And, yeah. and so you had twins and you have, what, two more children as well or no? Yeah, I have uh, twins that at this point in time, they're 19, boy-girl twins and a 15-year-old girl. Uh-huh. And uh, so the twins are in college and one of them studying computer programming. Mm-hmm. And although he's thinking of switching to communication, not because of me, the other one, I had nothing to do with this is studying speech pathology. <laughs> it's a defensive mechanism. You know, but <laughs> the reality is we, we've talked about it. We, we say uh, very wholeheartedly to the kids, there is no expectation that they come into the family business. I got that from my mom and dad. They said, you do what you, I was supposed to go to Hollywood and make movies, <laughs> you know? But there is a rule that we've established as a family business. I'm a part of a network of family business owners. And there's a network group of us we meet. And one of the things I learned from that group, I love this, and we implemented it here at Speech Improvement, is for family members, they have to work somewhere else for five years. Then they're eligible to come into the family business. And I loved it when I heard that. I did that. So did my sister. We didn't do it by a rule. We did it just because we went, I was out somewhere for about eight years before I came into the family business. But the value is so high, of course, working in, an, in another business for a while. Uh, it really adds to the coaching, uh, the, the ability to coach effectively. Well, Ethan, this has been a joy. You know, and for, for the listeners out here, great resource, really, you know, we all talk about communication and, you know, it's a hard skill, which I thought was really true. You know, you kind of go, it is a skill. You can build the skill, you know, but you mean, you got to mean to. There we go. Got to mean to. Boy, there you go. Yes, sir. (laughs) I I understood you, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Ethan, again, for folks, uh, the name of the book is Mastering Communication at Work, How to Lead, Manage, and Influence, right? And you can be found at the speechimprovementcompany.com. It's uh, speechimprovement.com, two words, speechimprovement, all one word, dot com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I found you. Yeah, so that's where I, I, you know, heard about the family. So, you know, Ethan, thank you so much for taking your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It was a joy to be here. You betcha.